You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you again, Prashant. I hope it's going well today. Yep, good. How are you? Good, doing well. And um, on today's episode, I guess we're back to a character that we discussed quite a bit in our 2016 episodes. Um, So roughly uh, just a a little over a week ago marked the one-year anniversary of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte's time in office. Duterte was inaugurated on June 30th, 2016, after winning in the May elections with a plurality of the vote. Early on, Duterte got headlines that mostly focused on his odd rhetorical style, to put it lightly, Uh, but then very quickly it became clear that uh, Duterte's style of governance uh, went past rhetoric and actually had um, implications and had real human cost. Um, He's probably best known in the West uh, for his war on drugs that has caused the deaths, uh, or at least the extrajudicial deaths, of more than 7,000 drug users in the Philippines. Um, But nevertheless, as we've discussed on previous episodes, uh, Duterte uh, came into office with a fairly high popularity rating among the Filipino people, and he maintains a fairly high rating today. Um, But we've talked about the reasons why that might not last. Um, So on on today's episode, we'll primarily be talking about uh, Duterte's first year in office. Uh, Duterte has had a far-reaching influence on Asian affairs, everything from the Association of Southeast Asian nations, where the Philippines took over the chairmanship in late 2016, to the South China Sea disputes, where he charted a dramatically different course from his predecessor, Benigno Aquino III. And I should note that we're recording this podcast just one day before the anniversary of the July 12, 2016 ruling by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in the case between China and the Philippines as well. So we'll talk a bit about those things. um, And uh, we'll also move on to talk a bit about a more recent development in the Philippines, which is the ongoing counterterrorism campaign um, in Mindanao, the southern, uh, the main southern island of the Philippines, the Muslim majority area of the country, where militants affiliated with the Islamic State uh, overran Marawi City, uh, led by the Maute group and fighters with Abu Sayyaf, but also foreign fighters from across Southeast Asia, which factors into kind of fears about terrorism in the Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia more specifically. As Mosul is reclaimed in Iraq, there are growing concerns that if the Islamic State's caliphate does end up acquiring a territorial presence in the Asia Pacific, it may be in the southern Philippines. So, you know, there are um, a range of geopolitical implications to uh, Duterte's first year in office that I'm hoping we'll address. But Prashant, I mean, why don't we start off by just, you know, talking a bit about uh, Duterte's position as as a Filipino president? I mean, with this Mindanao development, he's recently declared martial law in, in the southern Philippines. Uh, but, you know, where is he um, after after his first year in terms of his popularity and in terms of his domestic priorities? Yeah, um, so I, I think the I'd say a couple of things. I mean, the the first, I think um, it's important to maybe give the listeners uh, a more of a general context about the Philippine presidency. So unlike um, other countries, including the United States, the Philippine presidency is where you have a single six-year term as opposed to one four-year term or multiple terms. And so the there's no re-election thereafter. So what tends to happen... Um, and what has tended to happen in recent years with Philippine presidents is that they start with a very high popularity uh, rating, and then you see a sort of slow downward slide. And opposition to the president tends to mount later on, usually after and sometimes well after their first year in office. Um, And foreign policy tends to change in terms of major power alignments thereafter as well. So if you're talking about, you know, how you would assess Duterte's first year 
um, in power so far, um, the grade would have to be an incomplete, naturally. Um, this is particularly the case uh, because, uh, as you pointed out in the introduction, we're dealing with a, a fairly animated character whose goals have been pretty grand in terms of the initial objectives. So they'll take time to concretize their far-reaching reforms, which he's been talking about, um, everything from you know bringing peace to the Philippines with Muslim and communist rebels through major infrastructure projects. And a lot of these things simply haven't taken off. And we also uh, can't judge the level of opposition to him because, as I mentioned earlier, um, we haven't really seen that opposition cohese in any significant way, and nor have we seen really major crises. Um, and I would say the closest that we've seen is the the crisis in Marawi um, that you mentioned in the introduction. And there, um, as with some of these other initial issues, Duterte's supporters uh, have tended to give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of laying, letting it play out and see how uh, he fares over the longer term rather than judging him too harshly and abandoning him for support. So I would say the overall assessment um, as we're looking at uh, domestically in the Philippines um, is is pretty much an, an incomplete. Um, you know, with respect to the economy, we haven't seen uh, these major flagship infrastructure projects come out. With respect to the war on drugs, um, which you mentioned at the tail end of the introduction, We've seen, you know, arrests and surrenders of of uh, 1.3 million uh, illegal drug users, um, but we've also seen human rights abuses and extrajudicial killings. Um, so, so you know, how how do you weigh these things? I mean, these things will take a while um, to play out. Um, but I think that's where it stands um, in this first year. Right. Yeah. I think I, you know, I think I would agree with most of that um, when it comes to assessing. Um, his first year in office from a domestic political perspective. But, you know, some of the areas I think where we can see few more concrete changes, maybe Prashant. And, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. It's kind of the big questions about Philippine foreign policy. And, you know, you've noted this, um, and, you know, we've talked about this, how uh, we saw changes with the Arroyo administration and the Aquino administration as well when it came to kind of the big picture of where does the Philippines' destiny lie? Does it lie with the United States, its treaty ally, or does it lie with China, the rising uh, Asian superpower that few countries in Asia can afford to ignore? Um, and Duterte certainly is no different in this regard. Um, he got a lot of attention for, uh, you know, early on in his administration administration insulting um, former President Obama to his face, um, really kind of uh, really ramping up the anti-American rhetoric, uh, partly, you know, and you wrote a great article about this uh, last year about Duterte's anti-Americanism, which is pretty deeply rooted in um, both his personal, I guess, background as a, as a leader from the southern Philippines, where some of the uh, anti-American sentiment tends to loom a little bit stronger than it does in maybe, you know, the Manila metro area. Um, and, you know, I mean, the Philippines broadly, I guess, when it comes to public opinion, is one of the most pro-American countries in the region. Um, but, you know, this uh, adjustment that Duterte undertook uh, after after the South China Sea ruling last year, where, uh, you know, he began a rapprochement with China, obviously, as you noted, the economic agreements really haven't shown too many dividends. But, you know, a year on, I mean, what do you, um, what's your assessment of this? I mean, was this kind of um, as big of a deal as maybe some commentators regarded it in late 2016? Or has this really kind of fizzled a bit and the kind of institutionalized nature of the U.S.-Philippine alliance has mostly kept things going? Yeah. Um, so I, I think in the, in the foreign policy uh, dimension, um, you know, that's the biggest shift that you identified, the sort of um, independent foreign policy that he's been talking about, where uh, he's clearly tried to shift uh, the Philippines away from perceived over-dependence from the United States 
and towards uh, stronger ties with some of these so-called newer partners, uh, particularly China, but also Russia. Um, and uh, as you correctly pointed out, um, this goes against the the grain uh, in terms of Philippine foreign policy more generally because popular support tends to skew heavily towards uh, the United States. And that's actually where a lot of the Philippine military uh, has its relationships the strongest with, with the United States. Um, and I would say if I were to broadly characterize um, how that's been working out so far, um, unsurprisingly, progress has been much slower uh, and much less dramatic than Duterte often makes it out to be um, because it's an, an adjustment process. That being said, I mean, we have seen some pretty significant uh, changes in terms of the Philippine uh, foreign policy with respect to China. Um, you know, the Coast Guard cooperation has begun to take off, albeit in a, in a very sort of small way. We've seen some transfers of military equipment, even Duterte talk about uh, potential military exercises, even though those are a little bit uh, way off. But I think the, the, the critical point to remember here is that it's, it's um, still early days. Um, one thing that I'm going to be looking for uh, very closely in the rest of the year is how the U.S.-Philippine relationship plays out under Trump and Duterte, something, you know, a summit meeting that uh, you and I had talked about, you know, almost jokingly last year, um, but that, you know, may well play out if Trump uh, ends up attending the round of ASEAN summitry in Manila. Um, you know, there might be a potential for uh, the United States and the Philippines to strengthen their alliance um, as well. Um, and in fact, the siege in Marawi, one of the unintended uh, consequences of that is that it's made very evident how much the Philippines relies on American support still, whether it's in surveillance uh, or even uh, technical assistance that has continued in spite of his rhetoric. So I think, you know, there again, um, you have to really be careful about how you monitor the rhetoric um, and the reality. Um, I think the other thing that um, you, you and I can maybe expand on a little bit more because we've both written about this is, you know, with the first anniversary of the ruling, I mean, this really looks quite different uh, from the situation we had last year when, um, you know, both of us and, and a number of the other editors of The Diplomat as well were, you know, furiously uh, penning pieces about what uh, this ruling would mean uh, for Southeast Asia and for the United States and other players. Um, Duterte has been, you know, one of the most significant variables. You know, obviously the other the other is Trump, and also we have to pay attention to what the Chinese are doing. Uh, but my own sense is that um, in the South China Sea, despite what Duterte and some of the other Southeast Asian states have been saying about progress in terms of a so-called framework in a code of conduct in the South China Sea, we really haven't seen a significant change in terms of where China is, um, in mm -hmm. terms of what it's doing um, in the South China Sea. But interested to see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, I guess to kind of take a step back a year and kind of contextualize where we were and where we are today, I mean, you know, like you're right, a year ago, you and I were, we were writing, we were talking about the ruling, and in anticipation of the ruling, it seemed like it would be kind of a watershed moment um, in policy in the South China Sea, that China would end up facing reputational costs, it would have been, uh, you know, most analysts expected China to be found in violation of, um, or at least for the uh, for the tribunal to find in the Philippines' favor on most counts, which it did end up doing unanimously. And, you know, we assumed that a consequence of that would be that Beijing would be forced to sustain reputational costs and possibly think about either backing down or, conversely, it may lash out and begin some kind of, you know, 
uh, highly provocative land reclamation activity at Scarborough Shoal or significantly seek to change the status quo to assert its um, right to the 9-Dash line claim, which was found invalid um, as part of the ruling last year. But, you know, neither of those eventualities really happened. Um, I think what happened is that uh, Duterte, unlike Aquino, showed little interest in uh, kind of international law as a tool for weaker states like the Philippines to um, essentially fight back against, uh, you know, the unequivocal application of hard power and force by larger powers like China. Instead, he saw it um, valuable for the Philippines to maintain the uneasy status quo, seek concessions from China where possible on uh, issues like Scarborough Shoal, for example, declaring the fishing freeze last November, and uh, you know at the same time seek to uh, rebalance Philippine foreign policy by pursuing a rebalance with Beijing. Um, and obviously, you know the uh, the fact that the Philippines just happened to take over the chairmanship of ASEAN during Duterte's first year in office had broader consequences for the regional agenda that we've talked about on previous podcasts. Why? won't get into that in too much detail. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if we look at where things are going to go from now, and I guess here we can maybe even, you know, more broadly just talk about the future of this ruling. I mean, apart from the United States, Japan, a few other countries who've said that it's binding on the two parties, um, I don't really expect that we're going to see any sort of, you know, major statements kind of around the region really affirming this ruling a year on and saying that China and the Philippines need to come together and stand for it. I mean, we've seen the kind of tepid rhetoric out of ASEAN on the South China Sea issue more recently. Um, Singapore in particular has started to really kind of pull back amid its own rebalancing with China after kind of the Belt and Road Forum episode and everything. Uh, you know, a lot of ASEAN countries simply aren't interested in relitigating the issue at this point. Um, so, you know, as far as that issue goes, I think the status quo that we've seen persist for the past year under Duterte is probably going to stick around for a while, um, possibly until, you know, he's replaced at the end of his term by another Philippine leader, whoever that might be, who may have a different outlook um, as, uh, you know, as the previous Philippine president did. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I don't really see much changing. Yeah, um, I think go ahead. I think that that's, uh, you know, that's broadly right. Um, you, you really have seen, and, and in a way, you know, Duterte and, and the change in the Philippine uh, position on the South China Sea has really exposed also um, how little uh, there is in terms of um, this this idea of standing up to China. That the, how alone the Philippines was, um, and Vietnam being the other frontline state in the South China Sea. But other states, um, you know, have been wary about the extent to which they want to stick their neck out. Um, for uh, countries that are essentially uh, claimants to the dispute. I mean, there, there are only four of the 10 Southeast Asian states are, are part of this dispute in any case. And I think the, the case that they've made, um, which uh, both you and I warned um, you know, before the ruling, was that if the Philippines and you know, these claimants don't stand up for what they want in the South China Sea, it makes it harder for you know, non-claimants as well as um, extra-regional uh, non-claimants like the United States and, and other countries to then make the case that they want this more than uh, the claimants. Um, even though I think um, perhaps inadvertently what has happened is, um, you know, at least in Washington, um, the conversation has moved to be uh, quite hawkish in the South China Sea in some circles um, in terms of saying things like, you know, if these claimant states like the Philippines are not going to stand up for um, their rights in the South China Sea. The United States still has interests in the South China Sea. So should the United States, uh, you know, give up this idea of just standing behind these claimant states and, and take its own tougher position um, on the South China Sea? And that's sort of an interesting coexistence with uh, China's position, which is trying to downplay things uh, this year and 
you know, it's obviously looking to the party Congress uh, in the later part of this year saying, well, you know, we have the situation under control. We're trying to boost our ties with the Philippines. We have this framework and the code of conduct, even though that really doesn't really mean much, as both you and I know. Um, there really is this interesting dynamic uh, coming from both the United States and China on the South China Sea, apart from the regional context that we discussed. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to the second half of 2017 as a potential inflection point here. I mean, after the 19th Party Congress wraps up in China and after, you know, um, ASEAN chairmanship moves along from the Philippines, um, it'll be interesting to see if either China moves to change the status quo more aggressively. I mean, especially as it looks like, you know, the Trump administration is starting to veer out of its uh, quote unquote honeymoon phase with China. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think uh, the latter half of this year might be more interesting than than the past year was for the ruling and for the future of the rules-based order uh, in the South China Sea. Um, you know, moving on, though, um, this um, Marawi City um, siege has really, uh, you know, seized headlines, kind of took a lot of observers by... Um, you know, by surprise uh, to an extent, and people started to, you know, um, ask me, like, you know, are we seeing Mosul in 2014 play out in, in the Asia Pacific? And, you know, it hasn't quite gotten to that level. Obviously, the number of fighters that uh, initiated the violence was uh, significantly lower than uh, any numbers that the Islamic State works with in, in its primary Middle Eastern um, area in Iraq and Syria. Uh, but obviously, this is hugely, um, you know, complicated. It's it's very serious given that we have uh, foreign fighters. Um, we have a variety of groups from across the region beginning to swear um, allegiance to the Islamic State and beginning to apply that for um, in the pursuit of territory. And obviously the, uh, the armed forces of the Philippines have um, used some pretty heavy-handed tactics in attempting to retake the city, which has broader consequences for governance in Mindanao more generally, where, as you noted at the beginning of the podcast, it's not just these uh, jihadist groups. You have, you know, communist rebel groups, separatists. You have the 2014 agreement with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front that, um, you know, would come down to being implemented under Duterte. And now that looks more uncertain. Uh, so really, I mean, this is turning into one of the areas where I think uh, Duterte's presidency is going to be put to the test increasingly. Um, so, you know, when you look at how uh, Duterte's handled this uh, situation in Marawi over the past, I guess, you know, um, a little over a month, um, what, you know, what are some of your uh, big takeaways, Prashant? Yeah, um, uh, I think the, the way you framed it um, is exactly right, which is that, I mean, even though there, there are differences in terms of the comparison between, you know, Mosul and what happened in, in Marawi, the, the interesting parallel there is that Southeast Asian states have been worrying um, uh, for years now that uh, the Islamic State, as it loses ground in the Middle East, will look to Southeast Asia to be its next major theater of operations. And the major candidate for where they would try to set up some sort of uh, regional network would be uh, the southern Philippines. And I think this siege in Marawi really catalyzed um, those fears more so than they did uh, before. Um, I think in terms of how Duterte has performed, uh, it really is, as I, as I said broadly with respect to his first year in office, it, it's still an incomplete in the sense that um, he was very quick to impose uh, martial law. Um, and we're yet to see whether that's going to be expanded or even extended. Um, but it was typical of him in the sense that um, even when he was governor, he was very uh, quick to uh, take a heavy-handed approach towards law and order uh, issues, even though there might be significant consequences to human rights and, and things of that sort. Um, and so the, the issue here is... Um, Will this imposition of martial law and some of these other things that he's done in terms of the heavy-handed uh, tactics 
uh, actually work because I think that's where the, the Philippine people will look to judge um, what he's doing. Uh, and so far, um, it's been a mixed bag. Um, there have been reports about uh, the fact that the Philippine military had um, advanced intelligence as to where this uh, attack was happening uh, days before um, and they didn't act on it. But um, there's also some understanding on the part of the Philippine military um, and the Philippines in general that, I mean, this is a pretty tough situation. I mean, first of all, they were caught in an urban environment. Um, and so it's very hard or, or much significantly harder to avoid um, casualties. Um, and it's much tougher to secure the city because uh, essentially what's been happening is that the militants have been trying to blend uh, with the local population, which has made it significantly harder for uh, the military to intervene. So that's been tough. Um, but I think, um, you know, you're, you're right to point out that this really isn't about just this sort of Islamic State uh, militant link. It's also about this idea of bringing peace to the southern Philippines, which is additionally significant because Duterte is the first Filipino president from the southern part of the Philippines. Right. So if this doesn't go well, um, you know, it, it's additionally embarrassing uh, for him. So um, we're yet to see how this is going to play out. Um, the so-called enabling law for southern Philippine peace called the Bangsamoro Basic Law, which was um, sort of something that was uh, promulgated under the Aquino administration. Um, the Duterte administration is in the process of revising that. They're only going to get the draft of that uh, next week to see how they're going to move forward. So this is something that I think um, you know we're yet to see play out, and it's something that uh, needs to be closely monitored because you essentially have something that uh, will affect both Duterte's uh, domestic legacy as well as his foreign policy legacy at the same time. Absolutely, um, and you know, I mean, this is this is a classic counterinsurgency problem for uh, you know the Philippine government. Um, we've seen this play out, um, obviously, I guess, for U.S. forces in Iraq after the invasion. You know, fighters blending in with locals, um, challenging urban environments. Um, but you know, the argument that uh, you know several observers of the Philippines have been making is that um, Duterte really risks um, losing this fight. Um, you know, losing this fight both you know on the battlefield against against his enemies, but also you know the broader fight for peace in the southern Philippines. By by kind of um, overusing these heavy-handed tactics. Um, yep. So, I mean, again, I think this is, you know, one of those issues where, uh, you know, time will tell um, where the pendulum will swing for Duterte. Um, and really, you know, he hasn't, um, I don't think we've seen any signs that he's uh, backing off or taking a more thoughtful approach, despite the presence of U.S. advisors on the ground, um, you know, helping the armed forces of the Philippines uh, take on this challenge. Um, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, a place to close Prashant might be, uh, you know, I mean, the elephant in the room about Duterte is that, you know, he is, um, in many ways, you know, you ask a Philippine uh, human rights activists, civil society groups, you know, he does represent in some ways the most serious uh, threat to a return to, you know, full-on martial law, potentially um, even a full-on uh, dictatorship. Um, some people have incorrectly referred to him already as a dictator just based on his style, but, you know, the truth is he was democratically elected, he is popular. Um, you know, when you look at the uh, when you look at what we know about Duterte as as a president um, in the Philippines, and you look at his style, you look at how he's situated domestically, the challenges he's facing both internally and externally that we've discussed on this podcast. I mean, what's your what's your sense? Are those fears overblown, or is that something you could still see? We have uh, you know five years left for him in office potentially. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're right. That is the elephant uh, in the room. I, I was in the Philippines in in late April. Um, and uh, one of the questions I had was, you know, what is what is the biggest challenge um, to Duterte? And the overwhelming response I got was that essentially Duterte is his own worst enemy. 
uh, and that you know whether it's um, something to do with his health, which remains a major concern. We've seen you know several times now where he's disappeared for days um, without explanation, and his advisors haven't really provided a complete accounting as to what has uh, happened to him, and he still has five years to go. Um, but I think the to your point about um, potential heavy-handed behavior and a descent into uh, anti-democratic style, we already have seen some worrying signs uh, with respect to that, You know, whether it's um, undermining some of his opponents. Uh, Senator DeLima is probably the, right. the biggest example um, of that. Um, but also, this is something, as I said, I mean, we, we haven't really seen uh, opposition cohere yet. And we're already seeing signs that Duterte um, is resolving to resorting to some of these heavy-handed measures. I mean, what happens when opposition actually starts um, forming against him uh, when he no longer has the so-called supermajority uh, in the legislature and he faces challenges to his rule? Is he going to uh, go all out to try to suppress these things, or is he going to be able to resist? Uh, that urge, and I think it's important to to remind listeners that you know, lest they think that we're being alarmist, the Philippines is a very young democracy, um, mm -hmm. and you know, it's it's only uh, you know, Ferdinand Marcos, uh, the, the the former dictator, um, only left power in 1986. Um, so we're talking you know, 30, 31 years. So um, this is something which I think we should not discount um, as a possibility, particularly given Duterte's record, and while he has been governing locally, um, he doesn't have experience in, on the national stage, and this is really a different uh, ball game. So we, we can't really rule out that from happening. It's certainly something that worries me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a president who's his own worst enemy potentially sliding into anti-democratic practices, it's a good thing we don't know anything about that in the United States, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I'll just leave that as a closing note. Um, well, Prashant, um, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. And um, if you like this podcast, please do subscribe. And if you're a longtime subscriber, but you haven't, at left, uh, haven't yet left us a review on iTunes, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks. And uh, we'll be back soon with, um, with more on Asian geopolitics. Thanks for listening.